0: All right, so welcome back to this afternoon, or welcome to this afternoon. Um, Earlier people said their names and what they were interested in. Maybe you could share your name, and Michael. Michael. Great. And you're interested in the suttas?
1: Honestly, I'm interested in uh, Buddhist thought on early childhood trauma. Uh or even pre-cognitive trauma.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I've been hanging out around Buddhism since uh, a long time, 37 years, and only recently have I heard a few people speak uh, about early childhood trauma, and basically what what I'm hearing, maybe what I'm hearing is
0: there's trauma you may need to look at it from yet another perspective rather uh-huh. than just the Buddhist perspective I see okay okay well this is a good center to hang out at to touch into some of that yes it yeah. is. so welcome to today we've been just as a recap we've been looking at the, um, the transformation that comes about through Buddhist practice the Buddha wasn't teaching only a philosophy or a self-improvement course. He really wanted our, us to be different. And we, we saw in the first part, we met a murderer who became enlightened. And now, um, and, and the, the technique in the Angulimala Sutta was that of story or drama. Um, and that we, we learned that that did have value for us. Everyone felt that that had somehow touched them in some way. Another angle is that some stories can seem too fantastical. You know, this one did have supernormal elements, or it could be inspiring but not offer anything practical. I mean, you could read the Anguli Mala Sutta and say, okay, but um, what does that mean for what I'm sitting on the cushion? What am I supposed to actually do? Um, so there's so naturally there are other teachings that have sort of different approaches to these things that might, you know, that might include some of these questions. So another technique used to guide people in Buddhist teachings is to offer very practical and prescriptive instructions, and interestingly what I found about them is that they're prescriptive when you look at them from one side, and they do tell you do this, do this, do this, And then if you look at them from kind of a different angle, they're more descriptive. And they say, you know, when you um, are following the teachings and have been doing so for a while, maybe decades, if you look back, you will see that this is the way the steps unfolded. And so they're descriptive also. They go in both directions of time, if you will. So we're going to look at... um, this afternoon I'm going to hand it out now okay great so we're on the first page is the one that's 1112 and in the middle of it um, there's in you know, italics it says wisdom and so that is um, indicating this one that we're looking at it's, you can see from the top it's in the book of the eights I talked about the Angutra Nikaya before so that means it's a little clue that there's going to be eight of something Shared with us in this sutta, and it happens to be the second sutta in this whole book. That's why it's 8.2. So you can see already this book, just from a scholarly perspective, this book looks different than what we had with the Angulimala Sutta, which had a title. And you know, it said the Angulimala Sutta, and it said Thus Have I Heard, and there was a bunch, it was like a whole broken off. And this is just kind of like continuous suttas, number one, number two, number three. It's a different kind of setup in the book. Okay, so as we did this morning, um, we'll begin uh, reading it out loud. So maybe Trevor, you could start
2: at the beginning.
3: Bhikkhus, there are these eight causes and conditions that lead to obtaining the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life when it has not been obtained, and to its increase maturation and fulfillment by development after it has been obtained what a Here a bhikkhu lives in dependence on the teacher or on a certain fellow monk in the position of the teacher for whom he has set up a keen sense of moral shame and moral dread, affection and reverence. This is the first cause and condition that leads to obtaining the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life when it has not been obtained into its increased maturation and fulfillment by development after it has been obtained.
0: Okay, let's actually pause there for a moment. Um, I want to start with this first paragraph. So we notice right away that it just says Bhikkhu, so he's addressing monks. There are these eight causes and conditions. It doesn't say in the town of Savati, under the reign of King Pasenadi, there was this situation. There's, sort of, there's none of that here. This is a different style of sutta. It's very um, just direct. It's going to tell us you know, what these... It's just a quote, which means the Buddha is speaking. So it's just saying what he did. And then um, we just got to the first out of eight. So a bhikkhu lives independent on the teacher or on a certain fellow monk in the position of teacher. And then there's some prescriptive part. It says, toward whom he has set up a keen sense of moral shame and moral dread. Those are kind of unfortunate translations. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The words are um, hiri and otapa, you know, in know, Pali, and what they mean is, hiri means that sense that, um, of a kind of feeling when you know that you've done something that wasn't quite wholesome. You know, it's like you actually, you stretched the truth or you, you know, snapped at someone and you realize ah, that wasn't so good. Almost like, like conscience. Conscience, yeah. yeah Sometimes it's called respect for oneself actually, in nicer translation, translations. Like, I did something that wasn't up to the standards I know I can live by. And then Otapa, the um, counterpart, is the feeling of um, concern that you might do something like that. Like when you're going into a meeting, you think, oh, no, I hope I don't lose it, and or whatever. So sort of a sense toward the future, and that's sometimes called respect for others, is our concern. Okay, so just, um, so you don't have an odd sense of what those words mean. Then there's affection and reverence. And so it's, this is now the thing that's going to be repeated. This is the cause and condition that leads to the, to obtaining the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life when it has not been obtained, and to its increased maturation and fulfillment by development after it has been obtained. So that also maybe could take a little unpacking. Um, the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life what do you think that means?
4: I think for me it means uh, a change of uh, mind from seeking outside to seeking inside Mm.
0: yeah that's a nice that's a nice interpretation so the yeah that devotion the inner yeah. turning inward
1: mm-hmm. yeah. any other thoughts? I
2: feel like a commitment to um, ethics in a way
0: a commitment to ethics so well it says wisdom um, ethics would be more like behavior the okay. behavior fundamental to the Yeah, so there's something oh, the moral shame and the moral dread dread and the affection and reverence. Yes, there's a sense of wanting to act on your best behavior for your teacher for sure. And then obtaining this wisdom is when when there's some there's some wisdom around that. Probably strictly it means something like wisdom of the four noble truths of when you really understand the fundamental thing that the Buddha was teaching. And then you haven't gotten it completely uh, because it says it can then be further developed but the sense is that there's a point where you get on board and maybe that's what you're referring to Margaret is that you've obtained some wisdom that um, you know the development of the heart is the way forward and then from there you have to develop it and fulfill it so there's very much a sense of um, of doing, of development of of having a path that you're going to have to walk okay um, <clears throat> let's go on with section 2 if you'd sure. like to, yeah.
3: <coughs> as, as he is living in dependence on the teacher or on a certain fellow monk in the position of a teacher toward whom he has set up a keen sense of moral shame and moral dread, affection and reverence he approaches them from time to time and inquires how is this Bonti? what is the meaning of this those venerable ones then disclose to him what has not been disclosed, clear up what is obscure, and dispel his perplexity about numerous perplexing points. This is the second cause and condition that leads to obtaining the, fun- the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life.
0: Okay, great. And then those dot dot dots means it's going to go on with the same phrase that was used in the, at the end of the earlier repetitions of that. So this is, this is a very repetitive sutta, by the way. But, um, and so, you know, we don't need to go over each step in great detail, although we will read them. Um, so he lives in dependence on the teacher, and then as he's doing that, he asks questions. And so there's a sense, again, of you bring something forward. Um, you, know, you have to offer bonte, by the way, is just uh, an expression that one can use to address a monastic or a teacher, actually more a teacher. So you can even say that today. Like if you go to a Bayagiri, the monastery near here, um, and you see a monk and you don't know the monk's name, you can just say Bhante and uh, that's a, a respectful way of addressing him. <clears throat> okay. Um, and so then, there, you know, when you ask questions, then you get taught. And this, I, I appreciate that here it says clear up what is obscure and dispel perplexity about numerous perplexing points, Mm -hmm. it makes it clear that the teachings are not that easy (laughs) and so you hear them okay, I I heard that but it doesn't make sense to me or I don't understand this part or I don't know how this links to that and so there's a sense of um, asking about that and and, wanting to know and then getting that cleared up by the teacher
3: How how does this relate to
0: Mm, good question so um, I would say this is we're going to see how the structure of this unfolds over the eight steps and it is a description of a path actually I'm glad you brought that in Um, it doesn't go I see maybe because there's eight points it might sound like it's related okay so the eight of these um, are not going to quite correspond to the eight steps of the eightfold path but they're Maybe at the end we'll talk about how they map together because there is kind of a connection um, in a broad, in a broad brush sense. And this also connects to um, another teaching about the path that's called the gradual training, where uh, it describes a monk beginning in spiritual life and going from ordaining all the way to uh, becoming free. And it, it would work for us too. We don't have to think, we don't have to ordain, but we could think about making this transformation to being on the path, and then what proceeds after that until we reach freedom. So I'm glad you brought that up. This is describing, actually, um, these eight causes and conditions are not meant to be kind of all in parallel. They are meant to be a progression. Okay, so moving on to the third. Um, Michael, would you hit the third?
1: Sure. Having heard the dhamma resource to two kinds of withdrawal withdrawal in body and withdrawal in mind this is the third cause and condition that leads to obtaining the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life
0: ok great so again there's kind of a interesting phrase withdrawal I mean, we don't necessarily see withdrawal as positive all the time but this it's praised in the teachings as um As one of these steps, withdrawal in body and withdrawal in mind. Does does anyone have a sense of what that might mean for us as lay people?
5: Meditation.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. So meditation, you withdraw from for a time from all your worldly busyness. There's certainly that. I
3: think it's even more radical, probably for monastics when you spend quite a bit of time in seclusion.
0: Yeah. So, of course, he is addressing this to monks, and yeah. so he's talking about someone who would do that. So, yes, this is really withdrawing retreat. retreat. We can go on retreat as lay people. That's a similar thing. Yeah,
3: learning to just work with your own internal state, like your own
5: by itself.
0: Yeah, I see also a simplification of our life, maybe. You know, we don't literally withdraw in body as lay people all the time, maybe when we sit, but... Uh, We still are in our family or our job, but we can withdraw in the sense that we're not doing so much. It's important in practice that to somehow simplify one's life Mm -hmm. and just to give the mind a little space. If you're, you know, working full time and you have children and you volunteer on the weekends and you are trying to write a book, (laughs) you know, it's like something's going to have to go to really engage with these teachings in a way that's going to do what? Generate the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life. So this is telling us if you want that wisdom, what do you have to do? Um, We don't necessarily, you know, yeah, and so this can be... Go ahead.
2: Also being mindful we talk about bringing our practice from formal meditation into all activities.
0: Yeah. So definitely this is Meant to include, I think, our whole life, not just like on the cushion.
1: I kind of went to non identification. Mm. In what way? Well, uh, so you, yeah, most of us are fairly body conscious, you know, how we look.
0: I see, yeah, appearance conscious.
1: Appearance, yeah. Conscious. So now you're perhaps again in meditation.
0: Letting go of that yeah so yeah withdrawal from just the surface level concerns Mm -hmm. that we usually tie ourselves up in how I look how I appear to people whether they like me Mm -hmm. whether I'm doing the right thing to make this work etc yeah great great analogy
3: Mm -hmm. I I had thought to withdraw and (coughs) not not sending your mind outside to sense objects as much
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so restraint of the sense Mm -hmm. doors in a sense and not watching a lot of violent movies because we know the effect that's going to have on our mind. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so then the fourth one, Bonnie.
4: He is virtuous. He dwells restrained by the Patamaka, possessed of good conduct and resort, seeing danger in minute, minute faults. Having undertaken the training rules, he trains in them.
5: This is the fourth
0: cause and condition that leads to obtaining the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life. Okay, so this is, you know, remember he's talking to monks. The uh just to clear up that word, is the name of the code of conduct that's described in the Vinaya, which was that first basket of teachings I talked about, the Vinaya, the Sutta, and the Abhidhamma. And the patimokkha is just the name of, the, of all those rules. So he dwells restrained by the Patimoga. So he dwells within the monastic rules. For lay people, this would be the five precepts. Um, and seeing danger in minute faults—I mean, that's a little bit dramatic. This is very teraboden to be <laughs> yes. so much about restraint and pulling back. I mean, it's—it's—it's it's a particular approach. <laughs> um, but we could say this is like the mindfulness that you mentioned. So um, you know, being concerned about. if I see anger in my mind you don't have to freak out and say oh my god I can't have that but just seeing a little bit of danger okay there's anger in my mind oh I need to watch that I need to make sure it doesn't come out in some way or cause problems okay so then number five Susan
2: (coughs) he has learned much remembers what he has learned and accumulates what he has learned those teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing, which proclaim the perfectly complete and spiritual life, such teachings as these have learned, he has learned much of, retained in mind, recited verbally, mentally investigated, and penetrated well by view. This is the fifth cause and condition that leads to obtaining the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life.
0: Okay, great. So this is interesting, it actually includes the learning. The Buddha is usually very much into um, direct experience, I think we could say that that distinguishes him as a teacher, he doesn't accept only an intellectual understanding. Um, And yet, he uh, he emphasizes that it's important to actually learn the teachings. This is not so obscure, we go to Dharma talks, we read books, we study like we are today, um, you have to somehow take it in um, and really make it yours. This isn't just listening. This says he remembers what he's learned, accumulates what he's learned. Maybe the only kind of accumulation that's uh, supported here. And, um, you know, really understanding the teachings, retained in mind, recited verbally, mentally investigated, and penetrated well by view. Whew! So it's it's really... Um, Making them our own, making the teachings our own is how I summarize this particular one. Um, and I, you know you have to remember that at the time this was probably at the time this was said, depending how late it was, um, these weren't written down. so it's not talking about poring over books but you know listening a lot and people did actually memorize teachings at that time because you didn't have the book to go look at. so if you heard a good Dharma talk, you'd pay really good attention and to really try to remember what was said. We have such terrible memories now because we don't have to. <laughs> you know, we have just save it everywhere. Um, but this was really, um, I think, supportive of spiritual practice to have to really engage with the whole mind also.
4: All right. So
0: then, number six.
4: He has aroused energy for abandoning unwholesome qualities and acquiring wholesome qualities. He is strong, firm in exertion, not casting off the duty of cultivating wholesome qualities. This is the sixth cause and condition which leads to obtaining the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life. Okay.
0: So even after all that, there's a lot of work. There's energy and effort. um, Strong, firm in exertion. I like that it says not casting off the duty of cultivating wholesome qualities. So there's up to now, there's been a lot about restraint of unwholesome qualities, you know, restraint at the sense doors, um, making sure that he's restrained by the patimoka, etc., seeing danger in minute faults. So there's all this stuff about hold back, hold back, don't throw yourself out into the world so much. And now it says, um, cultivating wholesome qualities, not casting off the duty. So we're not just to eliminate unwholesome or to restrain unwholesome. We're supposed to actively cultivate things that are good. And that includes ethical behavior, of course, and also meditation and the development of concentration and other such things. So there's a lot actually in the suttas about energy and effort. More than we hear in the teachings in the West because Westerners are so driven most of the time and we're really, you know, kind of working too hard in our lives, spinning our wheels. Most teachers emphasize teachings of relaxation, ease, pulling back, letting go. Uh this is what we need mostly. But when you read the texts, um, they tend to be like this, is that there's a lot of sense of doing and actively pursuing something even to a degree more than we tend to teach. This is just my Kim's aside <laughs> about comparing the text to how we how we teach in the rest
3: it might have been taken more for granted if you grew
0: up in that culture yeah it might have been more what people of that culture needed to hear in a sense
5: okay.
0: yeah dude. maybe people were naturally leading more easeful lives and <laughs> you know and, and there's a sort of a you know, exhortation to work okay so number seven
3: in the midst of the Sangha, he does not engage in rambling and pointless talk. Either he himself speaks on the Dhamma, or he requests someone else to do so, or he adopts a noble silence. This is the seventh common condition that leads to obtaining wisdom from to the
0: So that's interesting, huh? No rambling and pointless talk.
5: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so it's like <laughs>
0: So there's something about, um, you know, even in the public interactive realm, getting yourself into a situation where you're talking about the Dharma most of the time, or the Dharma. And for most of us, this is not an, an easy condition to bring about, right? If suppose our partner is not a practitioner, suppose we have a job out in the world, we're not talking all the time about the Dharma exactly. And so, you know, this is, uh, I think, a pretty high standard is to whenever you're speaking with people so that it can somehow be connected to the Dharma or at least a good fraction of it is with other people in that situation. So reading between the lines, this is really, you know, saying to find that, of course, speaking to monks, they were mostly in this midst of the Sangha. So maybe for the monk, for the lay people, it's more a gesture of moving toward a situation where you can interact with a lot of Dharma people like coming to this group and having friends in the on the path. And for monks I think it's maybe more the emphasis is on the no rambling and pointless talk is that, you know, if you're a monk you're supposed to be serious about this and not hang out in the kitchen with the other monks and say, What'd you think of lunch? <laughs> you know, you're supposed to fulfill your duty as a monk. All right then.
1: So number eight. Can I say she, she, sure, is. please?
3: <laughs> she dwells contemplating arising and vanishing in the five aggregates, such to clean. such as form, such its origin, such its passing away, such its filling, such its perception, such are volitional activities, such as consciousness, such its origin, such its passing away. This is the eighth cause and condition that leads to wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life when it has not been attained until it's increased maturation and fulfillment by development
5: after it has been attained
0: yeah. okay. so on the last repetition it doesn't uh, it, it goes back and includes the whole thing to sure. remind you and then this um, particular cause and condition is also another one of these very boilerplate stock phrase kind of things that you'll see in many other suttas and so contemplating arising and vanishing, um, we'll just stop at that and say that the Buddha very commonly um, emphasizes observing impermanence in his teachings. It's really all over the suttas. is this arising and vanishing. This is what leads to wisdom. And in some sense you can say, well, geez, you know, who cares? Everybody knows that things change. That's not a surprise to anybody. And yet there's something about we don't quite see it. We see it all day, every day, and we don't quite see it. (laughs) Um, Because why? Because we're surprised when things go away. How could that be? How can that be gone? Oh, no. Um, Or how could this have happened? How could this have arisen? Uh, This is horrible. Um, We're very prone to these kinds of thinking. The Buddha says, well, you didn't watch. You know, things arise, things vanish, um, according to causes and conditions. Not yeah they have when the causes are there, they have to be there when the causes aren't there, they can't be there. It's that simple,
5: mm-hmm.
0: uh, but we don't see it. And so contemplating means meditating or I think he refer, he's referring there to um, meditating and really having a direct experience, but it can also mean thinking about pondering, reflecting on okay, so that's just emphasizing the importance of observing impermanence and then I'll go on in the five aggregates subject to clinging okay that's a that's a common um, phrase it's a panchupadana kanda um, and there's a bunch of different words there so the word aggregate means in in Pali the word kanda or skanda in Sanskrit literally means a heap of something I mean it's a, it was a common word you would say you know there's a kanda of hay after we, you know, got it out of the field. Um, So it's just a, and it's often a collection of kind of different things that are kind of related. So just this pile of stuff. And so he turns around and uses that word to define a human being as being composed of kind of five heaps of stuff. What is a person? Well, I mean, a person could be a lot of different things, but he says one way of dividing up the pie of what a person is is that a person consists of form, and that's everything material. So it's the body, and out in the world it's you know physical things. And then I'm going to skip this origin and passing away, we'll get to that in a second. And then the second aggregate is the aggregate of feeling, mm-hmm. which means um, the interface between the body and the mind, the impression that sensory impact has on the mind. It's pleasant, it's unpleasant, it's neutral. That is an aggregate of three different feelings, which are constantly changing and are hitting us with each impact, you know, each impact of us experience. And then there's perception, so that's what we make of that, so we've now moved into the mind. The aggregate of perception is our understanding of what things, literally what they are, just a labeling sense. You know, when I look at this room, I don't see just a collection of light and color and boundaries and movement I, I can parse it into people Zabutans, chairs the floor, the ceiling, the clock um, it's not that these things are fundamentally existent but I've been taught that this is how I should uh, parse the world we, we go to great effort to teach children to do this correctly and of course some of it's just natural in the way the brain evolves um, of course, the Buddha wasn't talking about the brain and so forth, but he just noticed that there's an ability of us to, that we have in the mind to see things. Absolutely crucial. We couldn't live without it. And that forms actually kind of a an aggregate of the way we see the world. Because our perceptions are, as we've learned in our relationships, perceptions are different, right? You go to a party with someone, and you think it's the greatest thing, and you don't want to leave, and they think it's awful. You know, it's the most horrible... Who's right? Well, you know, it's a perception in a sense. Um, That might be more of a mental formation, a volitional activity. The next one, but still, we see things differently. Oh, there's another lovely example. Actually, I read um, about—I forget the context—but somehow they had shown some pictures to um, tribe members from a tribe in Africa, and one of the—they were sort of stick figures, and one of them was a. A line drawings, I should say. And one was a woman sitting in front of a window. So it was kind of just her face and shape and then, you know, a square behind her. And everyone from the West who looked at that understood, oh, it's a, sh- it's a shape of a woman sitting in a room in front of a window. And um, the people from the African tribe said it was a woman with a box on her head. <laughs> because, you know, there was this sort of square behind her, her head. You know they didn't live in places with square windows. that made they didn't have that perception. They would never have said it's a woman in front of a window. And so that's you know a pretty fundamental difference in seeing what these lines parse into in our mind. So it's interesting that he picks these things out. These are what are relevant form, feeling, perception, volitional activities, that's another word what we would never say. we don't usually say words like that. But that's like everything else in the mind. So everything else about the um, content of the mind. So there's perception, which is one particular aspect of the content of the mind. And then there's all the stories and meanings and intentions and volitions and desires um, and aversions in the mind. And if you think of this, I think of this one as kind of like rest of world. You know those maps that say Japan, China, Australia, rest of world. <laughs> so this is form, feeling, perception, consciousness and volitional activities is rest of world. So it's um yeah, it's just all that other stuff that we do with the mind, the interpretations, stories. And then consciousness is also separated out as a it's and that's uh just the knowing of all those things. So just to unpack that term five aggregates. So the reason he picked these five things, it happens, is that these are areas where we tend to identify. We tend to create a self around these five khandas. <coughs> is consciousness different than awareness? I
3: know there's They're one pretty one. similar. There's quite a bit of debate. I don't want I to get into <laughs> all this. <those, laughs> yeah.
0: But it's basically similar. Yeah. It's a knowing unknowing function. Yeah. 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 Okay, so, and then he says, such is form such its origin, such its passing away. So this is the arising and vanishing. And you you literally observe just that. Such is this. Such is its arising or in the mind. Such is the arising of sound. You're hearing continual arising and vanishing of sound as my voice goes through your mind. Um, such its passing away. And we just observe that. So... We finally get to what is essentially a meditation instruction at the end, and he says following this, dwelling, contemplating this, leads to, there's an eighth clause and condition leading to this, this kind of wisdom. So it's, um, it's interesting, right? We start from very outward things, living and dependent on a teacher, and then Hearing the Dharma, changing one's conduct, striving, or deciding that the teachings make sense, striving energetically, um, really focusing the mind. Number seven's a little feel a little out of place to me. Um, this is I would have put that back in the behavior section, but and then finally um, getting down to the very fundamentals. This no longer has anything about him, him or her. Thank you for adding she. There, there is a lot of that he. Remember, I said earlier the Theravadin tradition, very traditional. Of course, I don't think any of them included she in their writings, but definitely it's all he. Um, So then we get to you know very specific, pretty deep meditation instructions of just sitting and watching experience arise and vanish, Mm -hmm. and all of these conditions lead toward this transformation of wisdom that the mind is going to go through in moving from where it is now to enlightenment, to freedom. Now it doesn't, um, yeah, it does say because it's, it's increased maturation and fulfillment by development. So that means you know, the full fulfillment of wisdom is the obtaining of, of freedom, of liberation. So you had asked about the Eightfold Path. So let's look a little bit. Um, it's not a perfect overlay. But there are, I think, we could say there are some elements that match. So, as a review, um, the Eightfold Path starts with two components related to wisdom, right view and right intention. That's called the wisdom segment of the path. And the next three are the ethical conduct segment, right speech, right action, right livelihood. So wisdom and then ethics. And then the next is called the samadhi section, or the meditation section right effort right mindfulness and right concentration so those are um kind of the order and then that leads to it's a spiral actually so fulfilling the samadhi leads to wisdom it goes back to the panya section of the path this sutta by the way is called wisdom it's called the panya sutta there were some of the literature for this event called the pacha sutta that was just a mistake <laughs> so wisdom panya um so let's look at these eight steps. So living in dependence on a teacher toward whom he has set up a keen sense of moral shame and moral dread, affection and reverence, and then um, asking questions. Asking questions, by the way, is one of the um, commonly described manifestations of wisdom. Inquiry or investigation is part of wisdom. So I think we see some wisdom at the beginning of the path, um, deciding that you're going to live with a teacher. Actually, that's more a matter of faith, um, especially saying he set up affection and reverence. So he decides he has faith in a teacher. This is a case where there's another teaching actually called the, I mentioned it earlier, called the gradual training. And one version of it begins with faith in the teacher. And then visiting the teacher and hearing the teachings and reflecting on the teachings and then practicing—that's basically how it goes. So I'd say this is very similar to that. It starts with faith in the teacher, which is um, interesting to see. The Theravadin tradition does have a lot of faith in the teacher in it. When you read the suttas, it's very much about—you see someone, you're inspired by someone, you hear someone, and you you develop faith in that person. We don't have a kind of a guru tradition. It's not as strong as in the Zen or the Tibetan traditions where one really um, devotes oneself to a guru and that devotion itself is used as part of the path. Um, it's not quite the same in this, but there is, there is um, I mean, living in dependence on the teacher. You, that means ordaining. Can you go and... You, Give yourself over to the life that the teacher is leading out in the woods. There works. is
4: kind of an inferred, yeah, yeah, because it's. I mean, the teacher is
0: the, the teacher is the Buddha, yeah. you know, or a certain <laughs> so fellow monk in the position of a teacher right. if you're traveling with another yeah. band.
4: Yeah, but it's yeah,
0: it's stronger than you hear in the insight tradition, right? right? It, so it really is there. Um, yeah, it is there.
3: Outside of faith in the dharma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't yeah to
0: teach. Yeah, so you hear the teachings and you want to practice them. There's, there are other suttas in the there are other suttas where um, people have con- quote unquote converted to uh, the teachings of the Buddha because they've heard somebody else speak them, but they're not traveling with that person. they're actually just practicing on their own. There's some um, citations of that. So in the same way one could just have faith in the teachings without a teacher go go forward in that way. So um, it's not a perfect map, but there is something about and the point of having right view and right intention at the beginning of the path, even before you've practiced, you have to have right view it's like does that make sense? Well it does in that you have to at some point decide that these teachings are for you and you're actually going to do it and then you have the intention of wanting to practice. So the wisdom there's some level of wisdom. This is not the wisdom of our hauntship, but you have to start with something in order to even get on the path. So that's why wisdom comes first. And in a sense, that's what this is describing. Somebody somehow gets themselves into the position of hearing the teachings because they're inspired. And then there's this withdrawal. That's maybe also part of um, part of wisdom, part of giving oneself over to the teachings, which is actually part of faith. It's interesting that faith and wisdom end up kind of overlapping in these. <laughs> and then there's... Um, He's virtuous. So there we go. There's the ethical conduct part. After you've decided you're going to commit to the teachings, you have to start living them. And for most people, that begins with our outer behavior. You know, we stop snapping at people or we stop killing like on (laughs) Gulimala or we stop, you know, whatever it is that we're doing that is really obviously harmful for us. And we all had something like that when we got on the path that, you know, even if it was a little more minor thing realized oh this has to go I don't know if I'm gonna walk on this path um, then there's one that isn't isn't in the same place on the Eightfold path so he's learned much remembers much etc um, so this there's, there's this reflective understanding of the teachings and that appears in the gradual training right at this point in, you know it says a person, joins the teacher, hears the teachings, and then contemplates them. So that's that's sort of in this other map, the gradual training. On the Eightfold Path, that that would be more part of view. So that would actually be way back at the beginning in the wisdom section. But maybe this more detailed version of it is something that would come, would come later. But in the Eightfold Path, we really have just view, conduct, and then meditation. So it's a little, you know, that's one that doesn't quite map and then we have um, arousing energy well there we go the sixth step here is the sixth step on the eightfold path right effort so one um, you know really applies after you've decided the teachings are for you more than just having faith in the teacher you know you hear something you're inspired that's not quite the same thing as really knowing deeply that this is this path works in a sense so um, so then we get to the energy once you realize this is really for me then you're motivated to actually sit on the cushion and actually really change your behavior and start to transform yourself. And that takes some effort. It doesn't just happen, at least according to this sutta. It doesn't just happen. Um, and then, again, this part about not speaking in certain ways, I would put that back in the ethics section, so it's a little out of order from, you know, the right, the right, speech. right within right speech, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's a little out of order from the traditional eightfold path and then this part about contemplating arising and vanishing well that's right concentration and right mindfulness and right concentration that's the effort one puts in more on the cushion it's really the deep practice the deep teaching it's going to lead to insight we can have insights through reading and through talking with people and through listening to teachers absolutely we can and there are of course just to not me making an absolute statement. There are suttas where people just hear the Buddha and get enlightened. Um, But for most of us, and what's indicated on most of these paths that are offered, is that you have to meditate at some point. Um, That is the only thing that can go deep enough into our clinging to really uproot those deeper problems in the heart. We can help the surface level, um, our behavior, our relationships. But to really get to the what's called the underlying tendencies or the intentions that aren't quite correct in the mind that is going to require meditation to root out and he suggests contemplating arising and vanishing of the physical and mental components of ourselves so that was a lot of talking um, how does that sound in terms of is, you know do you see how this kind of describes a path questions about that?
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I really like that concept of setting setting up the conditions that you don't really will yourself to freedom and liberation, yeah. but you
0: there's you know there's a, yeah, there's set a,
3: a cause. The and you do the work
5: especially can.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: it's very pragmatic. There's absolutely nothing supernatural in here, is yeah. there? Very it incredible. just you know it just says set this up. These are all very doable things: Mm -hmm. live with a teacher, hear the teachings, clean up your behavior, meditate.
3: Kind of hopeful too, you know.
0: And it's also hopeful in its simplicity. It's like, oh, maybe I could even do that. (laughs) You know, it sounds pretty practical. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a—it's a whole different style, and yet it also touches something in our in our heart. It it gets to us in some way we're open to it. Mm -hmm. Very interesting to me. So let's see. Let's just go on. We're not going to read the entire rest of the sutta because it actually repeats the eight again, but it repeats them in a slightly different way. So um, where do we get to? It must be on Michael. Could you read uh, the one on page one 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 four parentheses one near the top?
1: The old monks esteem him thus. This venerable one lives in dependence on the teacher or on a certain fellow monk in the position of the teacher toward whom he has set up a keen sense of moral shame and moral dread, affection and reverence. This venerable one surely knows and sees this quality leads to affection, respect, esteem, accord and unity.
0: Okay, so that's interesting, right? It's a slight it's the same quality as the other number one, living independence on the teacher with whom, etc, etc. But um, in this case well, the situation is that his fellow monks are esteeming him, I think it's very interesting that it's like this isn't your, I don't know why it brings in in some ways, you know how but you, others will notice, essentially. others are going to notice this. And then the last line is a little different too, instead of saying, this leads to the wisdom of the spiritual life. It says this quality leads to affection, respect, esteem, accord, and unity. So it brings it out into the realm of our community, our relations. And it says if you follow this number one, other people will notice, feel good about that, esteem you thus, and that leads to affection, respect, esteem, accord, and unity. So the group of people is kind of Unified and, and harmonious because a person has fulfilled this condition, it's inspiring to others. I remember um, one time, um, I was on a retreat with Gil actually, and he, he mentioned at the end of the, it was either the beginning of the end of the retreat, he said, um, "You know, there are people out in the world who are inspired just to know that people are coming on retreat." Mm-hmm. And I had never thought of that. You know, I thought I was going on retreat because I wanted to go, and I had created it, and so forth. And I was going to come practice. It was sort of just my little world of I love retreat, and this is what I'm going to do. And to have him say there are people who are actually just inspired to know that some people are doing this. I thought, oh right, I'm not just doing this for myself. Um, there's something about practicing well, even fulfilling these each of these eight conditions, that is. That has an outward effect also, and um, yeah, it can be inspiring in certain ways. And then it repeats um, each of the other seven to with that same pattern. So um, they say they esteem him thus, etc. This is what leads to affection, respect, esteem, accord, and unity that goes on until the end of this page and then there's a repetition these are the eight causes and conditions that lead to obtaining the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life when it has not been obtained and to its increase, maturation and fulfillment di- development after it has been obtained so again, there's not much story here necessarily but it's a very interesting list because we can look at this and see in our own life have I fulfilled each of these conditions in some way? You know, they're they're meant for monks, but they're equivalents for all the lay people, which we kind of talked through in each case. You know, we don't literally live in dependence on a teacher or on a certain fellow monk, but, you know, people do decide that a person is their teacher, even as a lay person, and then they practice with that person, come frequently to their teachings, go on retreats with them, um... There's you know maybe that feeling of, or maybe they even volunteer at the center and so you know get to talk with them more casually and so forth. So there is a sense that we can decide someone or someone is our teacher, and then you know these other things can also be translated into our lay lives. And so I think we're invited to check: Are we doing these things? If these are the eight conditions, we better have those conditions in order to get the result. are there any questions or comments on that up to this point? I think each of these steps is available to us in some way so I find that a little bit inspiring is that I don't have to be a nun I don't have to um, ordain I could if I wanted if I were inspired to but in case I'm not there are ways in which all of these could be fulfilled by a lay person you know This teaching doesn't say that, it's just addressed to monastics, but when I read it, I, that comes forth for me. I think there's an equivalent of all of these. And then also, I guess I'd like to say that there is, I mentioned earlier, there's sort of the prescriptive and the descriptive side. One could imagine that if these are the causes and conditions that lead to this wisdom of the spiritual life, um, whatever that looks like in a person, we could say, well, if a person looks like that and they have this wisdom, we better be able to look back, and we might look back and see that all of these things are there. It kind of goes both ways. And so it might be that not so much that we need to go through each of these, one through eight, and say, do I have this? Check, check, you know, kind of doing that. But just, you know, do your practice, make the effort, um, study the teachings, come to ISC. You know, maybe we don't know exactly how all this is... Playing out, and we don't get, you know, we don't need our rational mind to make little check boxes that we fulfilled all the conditions. But it may be that 25 or 30 years from now, we'll look back and say, you know what? I didn't know it at the time, but um, boy, that retreat I went on—it was all about arousing energy. This is this whole number six. It all happened on that one retreat. I'm just making this up, but we can look back on our practice after we've done it for a while and see things that were coming together I've seen this in my own path see things that were coming together that I had no clue at the time or I was interpreting them differently at the time if I was even interpreting them Um, so this could be descriptive as well as prescriptive so I don't I don't think we need to read suttas like this with a the the mind of acquisition that says I gotta get (laughs) each one of these Um, you know that's a certain approach that's might be might be not always the best it's interesting so um, so now here's a question for those we won't spend too much time since we have one person new but did Angulimala follow these eight steps he leaped right over he leaped over some yeah yeah, right this is all about development (laughs) He did number one. one, and then, you know, he well he was no. living
4: independence.
0: He was yeah. living independence, so there are some steps that were skipped in his case, um, but not all of them actually. He didn't quite go to the end.
4: Well, we didn't hear the depth to which he heard the dharma.
0: Yeah, it's not clear that he. We don't know if he received dharma talks while right. he was the Buddha's attendant, and we don't know how long he was attendant, but probably not too long in being his attendant before he attained arahantship. And so, yes. So then, did he with, did he resort to withdrawal? Well, kind of,
5: mm-hmm.
0: kind of. Definitely
4: withdrew from what he was doing. And he
0: withdrew from what he was doing, and probably he was meditating. Uh, we presume. Shaved his
5: head, right?
0: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Shaved his head, and so then, number four, he dwells restrained by the patimokkha. Well, yeah, he yeah. ordained. He mm-hmm. took um, he took the robes and he took the vows, and then we don't know as much about this learning part. Maybe not so much.
4: Yeah, he was in the process, I think. Coming yeah. back with his head bloody and being mm-hmm. told to just... to to bear it. Yeah, so I guess he
0: was still obtaining teachings at yeah. that time, so he hadn't learned everything. And we don't know to what degree he heard a lot from the Buddha and memorized it and thought about it and reflected on it. It doesn't sound like there was quite enough time, because basically, as I recall the flow of the story, he... Um, you know, he's been murdering all these people, and the king is looking for him. And then he meets the Buddha, gives it all up, and ordains. And pretty soon after that, the king goes to the Buddha and says, "You know, we we have this murderer; it's horrible." It wasn't like there were years and years gap where Angulimala wasn't there. It was all still very fresh. So my sense is that he ordained, and pretty quickly after that, succeeded in his meditation. So he sort of skipped over number five. Um, you know, number six. Did he? Exert firmly, uh, I don't think so. I think there was very little effort for Angulimala after he, um, basically said, I cast off evil at this point, throws his weapons down and becomes a monk. There isn't a lot of description after that, so we don't know what happened in his meditation or in his, you know, ethical development, but it sounds like it was pretty easy for him to he, he really did just become a different person through his mm-hmm. immediate devotion to the Buddha. And then, you know, he wasn't in a Sangha, so we don't know about his rambling and pointless talk, but probably there wasn't much. There's no evidence in the Sutta that he was a rambling and pointless talker. Um, and then, you know, he contemplates kind of arising and vanishing. That was that um, very boilerplate section that said, uh, through. His own exertion, he found what people um, rightly go forth from home home life into homelessness. Birth is ended, the holy life has been lived, etc. That's implying this kind of final thing where he gained the insight that led to this wisdom. So, you know, he kind of did this, but I like what you said, First Patrick. He just kind of leaped through it. It wasn't, this wasn't like a decades long process for him, in this lifetime at least. Um,
4: it's kind of like a low-hanging fruit, and you just never noticed
0: it. Something like that, yeah. It was fairly... He was ripe. Yeah, he was ripe. He was right, and
4: look like he was necessarily ripe.
0: Yes, good wisdom for all of us, too. And we, we should not write off anybody's behavior. Maybe they're... I mean, Angulimala went from murdering to being an arahant. What about that person who's just annoying at the office? They could discover Zen Center tomorrow, and... You know, <laughs> something could happen or they could come to ISC. So, who yeah. knows? You know, don't write anybody off. But, I but go ahead.
3: Oh, no. Yeah. Even okay. some of our current
0: politicians. Some of our current politicians, don't we wish? That's, <laughs> hard. that's a hard one to imagine. <laughs> Just like King Kennedy. Yes, but how could that really happen <laughs> to someone who is so much like that?
3: Yeah, I can see in in that's but, you know, yeah. certain other people...
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think this is a great point. We actually are invited to think of real examples in our own life. You know, could we even imagine certain politicians well, um, really kind of making amusing. that transformation? Yeah, no. some
4: of the politicians <laughs> really <Okay. laughs> say that they're really on their path, you know.
0: Yes. Distorted view.
4: Yes, yeah. In some way. too well, you
3: know, path in life.
0: Yeah, now we have to be in the realm of wise speech here, but... <laughs> I'm I, I finding
3: myself struggling with number four.
0: Okay, what's um, that one? virtual As a lay
3: person. Because uh-huh. I don't keep the 227 monk rules. Right, but there are for lay people there, are the five
0: precepts. Yeah,
3: okay. I know, but I'm wondering, like...
0: Oh, is it enough to just divide? Right, five? Like, you know, I'm not <laughs> okay. seeing
3: danger in minute faults. Yeah. Uh, like, if the standard is these 227 types of behaviors, and I'm only keeping it
5: doesn't really feel like I'm paying
0: attention to the minute faults that can one. be happening. Well, <laughs> but their only fault is a is a term that we assign meaning to. Mm-hmm. So a fault for a monk is only a fault for a monk because he's agreed to 227 right. rules. Right. For you, it's not a fault. Yeah,
3: it just makes me wonder if I'm the proper Is that gonna be deep enough? And, causes, right? yeah. and that's
0: that's a very interesting question is, you know, what's it gonna take for this mind? Right. And we don't know the answer to that. And nobody knows the answer for somebody else unless they're the Buddha. Apparently the Buddha knew what everyone's mind would need. But even even Arahants, so even people who were enlightened after the Buddha were said not to be perfect in being able to see what another being's mind would need in order to awaken. Mm-hmm. Which I think is interesting. Only a Buddha has that total power. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. We're walking on this path, but we don't know where the cliff edge yeah. is that goes off, or we don't know where, you know, we get as close as we're gonna get to the to the liberation. And for some, what I've imagined over time regarding ordaining we do go through phases where we think, "I really should ordain." Mm-hmm. Um, some people do, some people don't. But um, it's often a feeling: if I'm really going to be serious, I'm going to have to ordain. It's just not good enough. And for some people, that is true, and they, um, you know, the ordination is like the best thing, and they do it, and they feel like, "Ah, oh, this is it." For other people, a temporary ordination is nice. You know, they do it for a while. Other people just play with the idea and never do it. I don't think it's necessary for every mind
3: well that's different too because different traditions like Zen have almost dropped the division between lay and monastic in a lot of ways
0: they have a lay ordination which yeah, is interesting yeah it's
3: more of a it's like a closer blending you mm-hmm. know like to, where you can go you know take residence at a Zen center without necessarily becoming a Zen monk
0: mm-hmm, that's true
3: little mm-hmm. closer maybe than the divide in the Theravon the
0: tarabon tradition has tradition does have a strong yeah. very strong divide between monastic and lay it hasn't changed that much over time mm-hmm. it's one of its more conservative features
1: yeah. so yeah, um,
0: I'm sorry. go ahead
3: uh, yeah I just, uh, I don't know if this is what Theravon ter- ter- gave but the uh, virtue I mean what kind of what does it mean for us to be virtuous in these times, you know? Do not kill, well, that's an easy
5: one.
0: Probably, but although uh, that includes the spiders. I
3: had to go out there the other day and I was like, oh no. What about yeah. when the ants <laughs> invade
0: your kitchen or the termites yeah. invade your house? Yeah,
3: okay, I get it, yeah. <laughs> but yeah
0: I, I wish there was a little
3: more like instruction or relating to our times and our
0: this is a good point. Um, ethics, I have found, goes very, very deep, actually well into the realm of wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's not just the preliminary practice. It's not just the surface-level, outward mm-hmm. practice in that, you know, just take um, take the precept of not lying, which is, you know, most of us don't spend our day lying and lying and lying and mm-hmm. wrapping ourselves in nets of all that. But, um, you know, do we ever exaggerate? And why did we do that? To you know, to make ourselves look a little better, to make something seem better or worse. You know, there's there's something playing in the mind if we're not able to just say what something accurately is. And then going deeper internally, um, you know, are we lying to ourselves about how seriously we're practicing or how well we're you know following all the precepts? And are we lying about um, you know our, our actual commitment to the Dharma? And then you know. At, a deeper sort of non-personal level can we be completely honest about what's unfolding in our experience can we be so um, committed to the truth of what's opening in our mind that we stay with it even when it's very challenging even when it's very painful even when we're seeing everything in experience arise and fall away instantaneously as if the, the world is draining away like sand can we be honest with that it takes a very deep honesty to really see how things are at certain, in certain mind states, it's hard to see reality. So, not lying can go in sense all the way to seeing the complete truth.
2: Right,
4: yeah.
0: Which is freedom, because, which is enlightenment.
4: Yeah, it's life or in delusion. Yes. There's a lie. There's a lie <laughs> in some sense.
0: Ignorance is created by the mind. It's one of the most humbling things on the path. Is. You know, the ignorance is not like an external barrier that somebody else is blocking us. We've actually created the ignorance mm-hmm. out of our desire not to be free. Oh, what was I thinking? But there it is. You know, and it's, not, it's a process to uproot that from the mind, to get it to stop hurting itself. And we don't even see all of the way that's happening.
3: It's interesting, uh, just listening to you talk about that, because to use an ethical term, in a way it seems that there is this surface standard of ethics, but then underneath that, the ethics almost become relative to the individual mind on the path Mm -hmm. and where you are. So like sexual misconduct is going to be different for different people depending Mm -hmm. upon
5: where they are on the path.
0: Yes, that can go into dangerous territory and it's actually a fundamental truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have you know, our societal rules are something like moral moral rules or even you know, legal, we don't even have to bring in that component, but ethics is, a, is, is an individual thing mm-hmm. for someone's path mm-hmm. and that can
3: like I remember reading a line by Jack Hornfield that struck me when I was considering uh, becoming a monk and he was like, some people on the path become celibate, some people keep having sex <laughs> that was all he said about it. Those are the because two he options. Like, yeah, he was like, that's just what you do. <laughs> you have to figure it out for yourself in a way. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and there can be, you know, we still live up in this legally consequential world and there can be yeah. effects of that. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it is still delusion. The teacher yeah. is not fully enlightened and there are real problems. Yeah. Um, but that's all part of everyone's path. Yeah.
1: But anyway, mm-hmm. I hear you, what
3: you're saying. It's almost like, can we get a contemporary version? Yeah. I could, right? For like, yeah. our context? Yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> more diving into, like like you were starting to extrapolate yeah. on what does it mean to not lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the kind of stuff I really like to uh, <clears throat> go deeper, to go mm-hmm. deeper on. Mm.
5: We could, of course. Any of
0: them can be unpacked in that way. You start out at a surface level and then begin to apply to the components of our own mind. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is where the rubber meets the road for us. This is what we're actually doing in our in our life. It's great. I'd love to do a series like that. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> well, yeah, you could do it while
5: Bob's
0: uh, gone. I could do it while Bob's gone. There <laughs> we go.
5: Like Check out it. March now and now April. You live in Santa Cruz.
4: What? You could do it now that you live in now Santa Cruz. Now that I live
0: here, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I have given a talk on um, not taking what is not given and, you know, mm-hmm. really unpacking that for our lay life, mm-hmm.
5: um, yeah, so, which is available
0: idea. online.
3: I I, is it on AudioDharma? It's on
0: AudioDharma. Okay, yeah. great. I think it should be. If it's not there, it'll be on... It should be on AudioDharma. I think I gave that talk there, See Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, so... Oh, I, I had another point that came to mind while we were talking. Yes. So when we were comparing um, Angulimala to this, there this is called, you know, called the Wisdom Sutta, and it's about the development of wisdom, which is, the Buddha highly esteems wisdom. We're always pointed toward developing wisdom. But there are different means to doing so. Some people develop wisdom, because their mind is already kind of attuned to that and they're very much an inquiry type uh, an equanimity um, you know see the three characteristics see the four noble truths kind of mind and another path to wisdom though is the path of faith and to actually start with faith so I think um, one could say this is my own interpretation that Angulimala describes more the path of faith I think he you know he wasn't a a studious kind of student, as it portrayed in the text, at least. But more, more he was like just acting on his heart, and his heart got confused, and he was murdering. Um, and then he met the Buddha, and like he totally turned around. It's just, it's this kind of the way the heart will just commit to something when it really wants to. And from that, you know, he did end up um, reaching wisdom and reaching the what's called this wisdom fundamental to the holy life to the spiritual life but this path um, this this eight steps thing is much more systematic and describes a little bit more I think how someone with a more organized kind of mind might might find relevant you know like if I can imagine different kinds of minds Um, some people would read this and say oh this makes sense It's, it's very clear it's got the eight steps I may or may not do them step by step, but it's all there and I can get it because each one's practical. Um, and they might read on Gulimala and say, you know, it's a story, I can't really relate to that. And somebody else could read on Gulimala and just feel the whole depth of it and say, this is why I practice, you know, this kind of thing really touches me. And this, you know, cold list, pff, you know, I don't, doesn't really do much for me. I'm, I'm citing two extremes and I think what, when we were talking we sort of found that we could go to either end and that both of these kind of worked for different parts of our mind so more faith and more wisdom that's kind of the ends of the spectrum there okay so um, there's a lot of stuff out just a lot of sitting here okay um so I want to talk a little bit now about since we're, I want to begin to wrap up um, is that this notion of transformation that we're talking about today the mind is really transforming it's starting as something and becoming something else it's not just an improved version of that first mind it's something completely different it has a completely different response to the world and one can um, you know, one can ask, well what is that really? Liberation, you know, is it just the perfection of a mind? And I want to just offer that we don't have time to do a full analysis, but I want to offer that liberation is said to go beyond even good karma. Liberation is not just um, the development of perfectly wholesome behavior and perfectly wholesome thought even. Um, there's a number of ways you can see this. One is that um, bright karma or wholesome karma is said to be distinct from a different kind of karma called the karma that leads to the end of karma. So there's four types of karma. There's dark, there's bright, there's both dark and bright, <laughs> and there's the karma that leads to the end of karma. And those are all distinct. So there's a differentiation between you know the world where you're there is good and bad in the world that goes beyond something like that. But so this is a, this is an interesting point. I'm, you know, I'm. It's not said directly in these suttas, but um, there is, in, even in this tradition, the notion of something that goes beyond good and evil, something that is transcending that. It's also. Um, interesting to note I just want to offer a couple of um, images of what happens in the mind as it cha- transforms from one thing to another thing the, the kind of fetters if you will that are binding up the mind you know, that are preventing us from being free are, are structural in a way that's kind of literal the mind is bound up with these fetters um, there's a sutta where a monk asserts that the fetters in the mind are only present when the mind is being assailed by that particular problem. So if we have the fetter of sensual desire, for example, it's only there, quote-unquote, when we're caught up in our sensual desire. Um, and you could, you know, there are even some teachings that kind of imply the mind is only has certain components at any given time, and You know, if at this moment there's no sensual desire, then it's completely not there. And the Buddha actually hears this from the monk and rejects it. And he says, um, he says, no, actually the fetters are there all the time. They may be manifesting, or they may be just as underlying tendencies, um, inclinations of the mind. You know, what does that mean, an inclination or a tendency or something that's there, I say I call it structurally. This is my word. One image is um, something like a medium that contains a lot of um, folds and wrinkles due to inf- internal forces exerted on it. Like a crumpled up piece of paper, for example, has all this contour to it because it has a certain structure that's holding it that way. The paper, um, you know, the molecules, the sheets that have come together to form that paper are bent in a certain way and those bonds stay once you've crumpled them that's the nature of the structure of paper and so it's um, or a bunched up cloth for example um, and this is a fettered mind You know, it's got internal forces that bind it in a certain direction and then um, you could so now I'm making the difference between the wholesome karma and the karma that leads to the end of karma if you clean that cloth or you bleach that paper, it's still all folded or crumpled, but you make it pristine,ly pure white. That would be having perfectly bright karma. the The um, surface of the paper or the quality of it has been cleaned, but it's still folded. And so the um, the karma that leads to the end of karma or the Transformation, the unbinding. It's interesting that Tan Jeff actually uses unbinding for freedom. The unbinding of the mind is to spring those internal forces, such that the paper flattens out, such that the cloth opens up, etc. So, do you see the difference between cleaning the cloth and unbinding it in a sense? I think that's what practice does: is that it cuts these internal cords or dissolves these internal bonds um, that are binding the mind into this awkward shape, uh, and which then distorts our experience because you know it's the mind is not totally open. So the mind, uh, the purpose of practice is to kind of allow the mind to spring open into a. Uh, a smooth medium that doesn't offer impedance, doesn't have folds and wrinkles and crumples in it. Maybe the unfettered mind is, sort of becomes a transparent medium that vanishes in a way. So, freedom, you know, this thing that. You notice that neither of these suttas really defined what, what exactly happens. But you see it in people's behaviour or it's described in these phrases, you know, birth is ended, the holy life has been lived, there is no more for this way, state of being, etc. You know, what is that? We would say that freedom is the absence of greed, hatred and delusion. And when you know, when those three aren't there, what is there? Well anything that isn't those could be there. And so, you know, that would include compassion, wisdom, love, other qualities that manifest even from a free mind it doesn't mean there's nothing there sometimes people mistake emptiness or such to be nothingness which isn't really true
3: I, I read just recently in mm-hmm. one of the sutras that said you have three streams of thought that continued on after enlightenment uh, thoughts of non-ill
0: will thoughts of non-harming and thoughts of renunciation, renunciation of those are the three right intentions actually yeah, so to the degree that his mind was still going forward through volition, um, he would have only the three right intentions. And so those could lead to all kinds of wonderful, beautiful behavior and qualities of mind and so forth. But as long, as long as there's no greed, no hatred, no delusion, the mind is free. So I think this is interesting in that it leaves it leaves open that for different people, freedom looks different because they've just got a different mix of stuff, um, of the non Non greed, non hatred, non delusion, there's still a lot of possibility there and people could have different combinations of it. Hence, we see, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that these people are completely enlightened, that I don't know, but we see, um, you know, very prominent Asian spiritual teachers who are very much meta types, you know, they're just overflowing. Like Deepama was said to be, um, she was a nun from uh, last century, said to be just. So loving, people would just sort of melt when they saw her. That was just her radiance. Others are, you know, much more wisdom types, and they're a little more aloof. And um, but you know, when you come, you're going to get the truth told to you, and your your fetters cut through by what they're saying. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, I don't know about the exact total enlightenment of these people, but you can see, um, you know, you can see the tendency of certain minds of certain wholesome qualities come out um, as the greed, hatred, and delusion aren't there in different proportions. Mm-hmm. To me, this is very inspiring, is that freedom doesn't have to look a certain way mm-hmm. when it's, it's free. How could it be constrained <laughs> to be a certain way? Right. Uh, so, um, I think it's, it really makes it wide open what practice is going to do for our mind. And we can't, then the corollary to that is we can't prejudge mm-hmm. what's unfolding on the path for mm-hmm. us it's like wow I don't know I mean even just in how your life has unfolded up to now did anybody expect it to go exactly like it did <laughs> no yeah. probably. it's really helpful
5: because right? I
3: know sometimes I'll have a tendency of yeah. like what is an odd off book like? or you hang out with a certain monkey and it's like you want to be able to see or pinpoint like what the freedom might be right, right. But it's nice to hear that it's, can I imitate it's that free, and like right? that? it's like <laughs> yeah. that and even my freedom won't look like
0: may not look like mm-hmm.
3: this it's got to include the like kindness though. It's, I, I see people that yes. profess to be wise but they're not, but they're not kind.
5: kind
0: yeah because yeah. the the tendency you know the intention toward non-cruelty right. and toward non-ill will should manifest as kindness as compassion yeah
3: weakness is yeah. a kind of an aggression you know, yeah it would be hard to say you would be free from hatred if you don't have some measure
0: of kindness some measure of kindness and yeah. love but love doesn't have to look like we expect it to look no. um, yeah. a lot of what we would call love or even kindness is sometimes shading more toward niceness or attachment mm-hmm. in some way um, but I think I think there's a certain warmth of heart from anyone who's traveled on the path enough for their heart to open to Nibbana mm-hmm. um, you got to Pass through some things to get there, and the heart will soften and open in that. Uh, you can feel that in someone, even mm-hmm. who's someone who's very wise and you know more along the wisdom side. So I think you know our, our, the mind gets transformed into something that we can't really understand from our current perspective. And we may not recognize it. That's another reason we don't recognize it. We heard it earlier this morning it could be something that we don't see in ourselves necessarily. You know, if we were really completely enlightened, probably we would eventually know that. <laughs> but I um, hope so. <laughs> <laughs> because you know, we couldn't be ignorant about that, right? Um, it's interesting. There but I be, go ahead.
3: Oh, there may be ways to measure it now with modern neuroscience. Oh, maybe that, we're going to find that, the that, yeah. uh, serious uh, meditators; their amygdala actually shrink. That's right. The amygdala yeah. is the reptilian part of our brain, the fight or flight, the one that causes us to explode in anger. Or yeah.
5: yeah.
0: So there are certain I indicator, physical indicators. Yeah. 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 So um, you know we're kind of winding up on the topic, but we have t- time for some more discussion. You know what does maybe what does transformation mean to you on the path? Is that a meaningful term? And are there you know examples you've seen, or you know, just this word transformation, and or what's inspiring about it?
3: For myself. She said something about, you know, that everybody's got a different way to like condense Buddhism or practice. And, but she said something that really resonates for me that's moving from a life of hurting ourselves and others to a life of not hurting ourselves and others. It's a nice you, that's a nice way to say it. That's mm-hmm. the transformation.
0: That's a beautiful way to say it. That's another one that can happen at many levels, right? Um, Hurting to not hurting can be literally, you know, stopping unkind speech and so forth, all the way to I'm hurting myself every time I have an unwise intention even deep in my mind, an intention an intention not to renounce, for example, to hold on to something or to push something away, even the tiniest flicker of a mind state. So if you took not hurting all the way to the end, it would be liberation and the path of doing so is compassion you know not hurting this is an intention of compassion
2: does help me keep going being able to look at my the change in my behavior especially or my self- honesty and um definitely more experiences of self-compassion. As yeah. You see that over the months. Keep you
0: going. Yeah, the great thing about this path is that we don't have to wait all the way till the end. <laughs> you know, this is another implication of the, uh, you know, another, um, yeah, of a gradual path is that, um, you know, we get little morsels along the way and that helps us keep going. We don't have to just, you know, plot along through the desert until you know, everything happens good in the
5: beginning, <laughs> middle and
0: end good in the middle, good in the beginning, middle and end exactly, we even had that in uh, this sutta
4: I think just losing fear yeah having not let up and just allowing myself to have a fuller um, experience of whatever's going on
0: yeah, by being able to open to more of it. Another one that if you take it all the way, it's,
4: yeah, yeah.
0: you get up it, bit by bit, but it will go.
3: so marvelous to have a refuge inside that you can go to no matter what and like this ease and this lightness and the mind can just sort of like dance through the experience without a lot of concern mm-hmm. and it's wonderful um, I just feel so grateful to have it yeah.
5: thank you
0: Well, these are great um, deep understandings of transformation, even, you know, we may or may not be Arahants. I don't know for all of you, <laughs> but I know for me it's not. Um, and yet, you know, there's uh, so much that we've learned, you know, on this path already, so much that's already transformed for us. We could also... Um, if you have any comments about your relationship to the texts you know, this was in the end of day on studying the texts some of you even said at the beginning that you hadn't really looked at them before um, do you have a sense from what we've done of um, how, they, how they're meaningful to you or how it's interesting to relate to them you may not know that till later but just a chance to express a little of that
4: well, I've read them before, not all of them, but, but what's really nice for me is just the feeling of reaching back into antiquity—that mm-hmm. this isn't something that you know somebody came up with at the turn of the century,
0: right? Yeah, it's—I've been amazed also by how relevant these are. Um, sometimes we, to the we know
4: that the Buddha himself was, you know, starting out on a path, so there was. You know, there was something before that. Yep. And perhaps that's kind of the nature of man, or of the whole world, Mm -hmm. however you want to look at it.
2: There's this
0: path, and it's, the human mind is the human mind, (laughs) and it's been Mm -hmm. that way
4: for a while. And maybe even the world mind. The world mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: <clears throat> I like taking these ancient texts and then bringing them into a modern discussion. And
0: yeah, figuring out what they translate yeah, just to. Just by for themselves,
3: us. for me, it's, you know, struggling with the translation, you yeah. know, instead of like, what was that on? The shame and.
0: <laughs> moral shame and moral dread. <laughs> yeah. oh. I mean, that could have been
3: better translated
0: as yeah. humility.
3: Yeah. Humility yeah. <laughs> yeah. you you know? So, but to bring it. You know, I have so many yeah. different perspectives. That's the best way for me to come at.
4: Yeah, it
0: um. makes sense. They have to be, they have to be made meaningful for us.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's nice to have somebody, a teacher, <coughs> explain stuff. I mean, I, I, some of this stuff would have, would have thrown me. Yeah, like I wouldn't have thought particular it, language or
0: references. It? Yeah. yeah. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, and that's how it's been done all along. Is that people have kind of guided each other through these. There's probably no, I mean, if you, I, I think about that sometimes when I read these texts. It's like, how could the Buddha express something that's still going to be relevant 2,600 years ago? Like, what kind of language would he have to use and what kind of structure to the teachings? He really knew how the mind worked, and so he wrote things like lists, you know, people like lists, I guess, Um, you know, those same back then as now or something, Um, and stories, you know, things like that, and so he had these certain, even media ways of communicating that transcend culture and time in certain ways, not all of them do, but um, some of them do, and that's, I think, pretty brilliant, you know, because I'm sure some of what's, you know, written on the blog posts and stuff these days not going to translate very well even a hundred years from now
5: um, yeah mm.
0: maybe maybe I'm exaggerating but 2600 years would it even be comprehensible
3: I don't know I wonder, wonder how much even further back this person goes it go back another thousand years mm. no. no. you know, because a lot of this was developed in India or nearby places long before the
5: Buddha
0: yeah that's true a lot of this um, came out of like the Dhammapada being something that was known at the time um, not all of it but um, it's found that parts of the Dhammapada were from um, poetry and literature and other traditions at the time and the Buddha kind of borrowed them and changed some of the words and so forth
3: well,
0: Well, that's a good point. Yeah.
3: I really like number, um, personally, right now, number three out of the eight wisdom I'm just really, I'm really feeling my practice dog. taking me into that, mm. and I'm also feeling the resistance, right? mm. So, like, I, it's, it's almost like you... Feel the letting go happening sometimes, and then the resistance to the letting go, and it just keeps happening on its own as the practice deepens. Yeah, and you're just kind of along for the ride, letting go and letting it flow. And and I'm just feeling that kind of call. Pressure is the wrong word, but this sense of it happening—it's just my mind is doing it on its own. Sometimes even to my own chagrin. Literally want to withdraw like that, you know, like there's a resistance we still have, mm-hmm. right, as we work our way down. So I've just been feeling my practice taking me into these periods of withdrawal, or literally and physically, like in body and some seclusion and deeper meditation, and, um, and then in mind in the way that my mind sends out and wants to experience still.
0: Process, isn't it? it is an interesting <laughs> process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's
3: nice that there are texts <laughs> to go. Oh, that's what's happening. And yeah, not, right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So this is a little bit descriptive, yeah. right? You look back and say, "Oh, this is something that's going on for me right now." You didn't have to check it off and do number one and two first, right. and so forth. Right. It's very interesting the way that that comes about. Okay, so this is um, much of the material that I wanted us to go through today and and explore, looking at these different ways of talking about the transformation that the mind undergoes, what does that mean, how do people get there, very different paths, um, very different types of teachings that are kind of pointing in the same direction of something that's indescribable, that's a little bit hard to point to, but something happens and the mind changes. And we've only read two suttas out of just thousands and thousands. I guess we'll have to have a lot of these (laughs) (laughs) classes. So thank you very much for coming. And maybe we can dedicate the merit of our work today um, just understanding that what we've done is something very wholesome to not only for our own development and path, but also for the continuation of these teachings. They don't They've been going on like this all this time to get to us and we can do our part to learn them and continue them. And then also, of course, to the way that our practice will flow out and help other beings, ones that we meet later today, our family, people we're going to meet in the future and just rippling out, we don't even know how far. So we just hope that we dedicate the merit of what we've done to all those beings, And we wish that all beings find happiness, find freedom, and find peace.
3: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org. Donate.